Hello, everyone, and welcome to That Wellness Podcast with Natalie Deering. I'm sitting here with Robert Falconer, and we are going to be diving deep into his new book, The Others Within Us, Internal Family Systems, Porous Mind, and Spirit Possession. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Is it okay if I call you Bob? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Wonderful. So Bob is an IFS practitioner. He's a teacher. He's a writer. For the major part of his career, you've worked with trauma survivors. And now a lot of your focus is on the study and treatment of what we call in IFS unattached burdens. Mm -hmm. But you also have a lot of work and study in the use of psychedelics in IFS. Is that correct? Yeah. And I'm still quite active there training providers. Yeah. That's something that I'm also really interested in. And I'm currently in the middle of taking one of your trainings in regards to psychedelics and IFS. So that could be maybe a future episode if you're willing to come back on and we can get into that. And yeah, so I know, I know you Bob through your work in the IFS community I myself is a, I'm an IFS therapist, level two trained. I just, parts of me over the past couple of years, we're just kind of diving into trainings and yours have been ones that I've really gravitated towards. And so that's how I have come to be familiar with you. And now of course, this amazing book that has just been released, I think last week. Yeah. Yeah. The third actually. Yeah. Yeah. April 3rd. And now it's, as we're recording this, it's the number one, it's on the number one spot on Amazon under, I think, psychology, is it psychology and religion? Yeah. And it was number one in transpersonal psychology too, but these things change almost daily. So who knows? Yeah. Who knows? (laughs) But congratulations on that number one spot. It's amazing. And in this book, you know, when it came in the mail and I opened it, parts of me were kind of like, oh my gosh, it's thick. It's a thick book. And Mm -hmm. I appreciated, as you mentioned in the beginning, you wrote a a section on how to use this book, which parts of me really appreciated reading that. And you just didn't want people to be overwhelmed. And on the other hand, you know, there's this old saying extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So I wanted to present very thorough uh, evidence that these things that IFS calls unattached burdens really exist and are important. Yeah. And I, this may be, um, I think anyone who reads the book with any degree of attention will, will come to that same conclusion. Absolutely. Experiencing these in every culture we have record of in all areas, eras of history. Mm-hmm. And, and they've had profound effects on people's lives. And therefore, no matter whether or not they fit our worldview, they're worthy of study. Yes, I, I agree. And I really, I'm really impressed by yeah the amount of research and, and time you've spent. How long have you been working on this on book? This, about 10 years. So wow. it's a very prolonged labor. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very long labor process. Yeah. So congratulations on the birth of this book, because you look at it, you read through it, and you can just feel all the time and passion that you really spent towards creating this. So thank you for and even yeah. though it's, you know, close to 500 pages, the majority of what I studied got 
didn't get in the book. Wow. So there's so much more. Yeah. <laughs> so much more. So I, I'd love, I love asking this question when I'm talking to people who are in the IFS community. Parts of me are always curious about how did you get connected to IFS or how did IFS find you? Well, my own history is extreme violent uh, sexual and physical abuse throughout my childhood. Um, my father, both my mother and father were perpetrators. Uh, my brother committed suicide when we were teenagers. Mom was in and out of mental institutions. Uh, my father was murdered when I was 21. I should be dead like my brother, living in a dumpster, in prison, a junkie, <laughs> something like that. Mm. And at 75, I think I'm basically a man of joy and um, productive and helping people. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've examined pretty much every form of therapy that's known to man, humankind. Many of them should not be known to humankind. <laughs> I, I can agree with I'm that. I'm not yeah. supposed to say that, but <laughs> you know, you get old enough, you don't care anymore. But I, and I went through many and many were very helpful. Ego state therapy with the Watkins. I, I live fairly near the Esalen Institute. So I did a great deal of gestalt and worked with many of the people there. And that was a very good home for me. But then, oh, 15 years or so ago, I discovered IFS and it took me a while to make the move over from Gestalt 100% to IFS. Mm. But IFS is, I think, the most respectful and potent form of therapy I've ever discovered. And I think it is potent because it's so respectful, which is sort of counterintuitive for a lot of people. You think of potency and, you know, some kind of a big force thing. No, it's... Mm -hmm. Well, just about the exact opposite of that, I think, in the inner world. Yeah. So it kind of sounds my journey to IFS, you know, I had been practicing as a therapist for eight years into my career before I had even heard about IFS. It wasn't mentioned in my graduate training or, of course you know, <laughs> anything like that. Right. And then it was actually a client that I was in session with them and they brought up a book called Complex the complex PTSD workbook. And I purchased it and was looking through it. And there was like a little, it wasn't even like a full page. It was just like a little paragraph, but it talked about IFS and it really spoke to me and my system. And, you know, I had studied, like you, you were saying, a number of different modalities of healing and, and, and found benefit in, in a lot of them. And it wasn't until, yeah, I really got into the IFS work that I'm like you. It was just, it was the thing I was missing, I feel like, in my own healing work, for sure. And then in the work that I was able to do with my clients. Yeah, I find it interesting to hear from people. How did they come across it? And how did IFS find them? And when did it really stick, you know? Yeah. I met Dick at Esalen. He was doing a workshop and I just oh. happened to do it. And back then, everything wasn't sold out instantly. Right. You know, there was room. It wasn't that hard. Yeah. Now it's a bit more difficult. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit more difficult. And if you're fortunate enough, yeah, to even get into a like a, a level one or a level two or a level three, it's, oh, <laughs> there's a lottery system. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. There's a lottery system. Yeah. So 
I would love to yeah dive into into your book specifically about unattached burdens and to first talk about how did you how did you come to understand or how did you get introduced to I guess what we call UBs you know for short in the IFS community how did you first come across that was it something that you were introduced to like in one of your trainings and like a level one, two or three uh, parts of me are curious about that. I had heard about them and Dick only used to talk about them in level threes. And, but I've done, I think four level threes with Dick now, but I'd heard about them and I just had only sort of, you know, eh, maybe you'll run into this one day. And, and they, we used to call them critters. That's right. Which I like, I like that name much better. Uh, Dick gets a little upset that I keep using it sometimes. <laughs> so I was being a program assistant, and this, uh, there was, a, you know, for people who don't know, one of the things we do is run these practice groups where someone's a therapist, someone's a client, and someone's a witness. We have three of the participants with us, and we do direct supervision. And this guy was working with this woman who had something in her that I started realizing was a critter. And he was getting flustered. And I said to him, I don't think you've had any training in this. Would it be okay if I took over the session? And he went, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what this woman was experiencing in her inner world is she saw this thing that looked like a bloodshot eyeball, a great big bloodshot eyeball. And it was a voice like an internal critic but it was really mean. Mm -hmm. And no matter how hard we looked, there was no good intention in that inner critic. It wasn't trying to make her safe. It was just trying to make her feel small, destroy her. And we'd keep going for, you know, well, what's good about destroying her? Then I'd win. Mm. Uh, there was nothing good in there, no matter how hard we looked. Yeah, no positive That's intention. The, no positive intention at all. And the next thing, you know, I knew from the very basic training is you just ask it directly, are you a part of the person? And they don't seem to be able to lie about that one thing. They can lie right. about other stuff. It wouldn't answer the question. It avoided it, which is fairly typical. And I just kept, kept telling her, please just ask this being, are you a part of me? Are you a part of my system? Kept avoiding and avoiding. And then it finally turned and had her say to me, you're supposed to be a teacher. That's a very stupid question. Don't you have anything smarter to ask? Mm. <laughs> and I just laughed and said, well, it might be stupid, but it's simple. Are you a part of her? And then finally it said, no, mm. I'm not. I'm a much more beautiful and powerful being. And I'm going to squash her like a bug the same way I'm going to squash you. That's, that's a, a critter or a UB energy. Mm -hmm. And we were able to get it out of her system, just using really, you know, I didn't know hardly anything about them. Just, you know, surround it in light, tell it it can't stay, move it out. It tried to get back in. We moved it out again. It stayed out and it was gone. And then I closed the session and debriefed with the little group and was rational and coherent. <laughs> and then I went into a staff meeting and I was pretty freaked out. Mm. My core body temperature went way down. I was shivering and I got a blanket and, you know, I, I just thought this was the weirdest. And later that night, I just thought, 
I'm going to pretend this didn't happen. <laughs> this, this is too weird. It doesn't fit in my world. You know, ah, just, you know, just, you know, some weird stuff. We'll just ignore yeah. that. Then she started sending me all these emails from the airport going home about, oh, I can see the light now. Everything's so beautiful. And I can see the divinity in all the other people in the airport. Mm. And I got really frightened. I thought, my God, I've triggered a major manic episode. And this woman's in danger. What have I done? You know, yeah. uh, dreams of malpractice lawsuits. <laughs> you know, oh, no, oh, no. And then she sent me another email that really scared me. She said, I didn't tell you this or anyone else there. But when I was a young woman, I was hospitalized many times. And I tried to kill myself many times. Hmm. Now I'm totally freaking out. And then she sent me the email that changed changed my life, really. She said, Bob, you're the first person to ever believe me when I talked about the non-human inside of me. Mm. You have changed my life. Thank you. That's really beautiful. And she said back then when she tried to tell people about this, they gave her electroshock, uh-huh. put her in restraints, and gave her drugs. Right. <laughs> and when when I got that from her, I thought, I can't ignore this. Yeah. I wanted to pretend this didn't happen, but no. Because, mm-hmm. you know, a sort of ignorant, a semi-ignorant intervention that took about an hour changed this woman's life. Mm-hmm. And no, I can't ignore that. And right. the damage that was done to her in, that, in those mental institutions, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And, you know, I'm curious. So in that experience, would you say that it was kind of, you were just really connected in that moment with your self energy and was the whole thing, which we'll get into more detail about like the process of the seven steps, but you already Mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, like inviting it to go maybe into the light. Right. And was that something that just came to you or was that something you had already talked to maybe other people in the IFS community about, or that was, that was something that was something that, that was discussed a little bit in the IFS community, but not much. I mean, I probably only had 10 minutes or a half an hour of training about it. It was just like, Oh, you know, maybe sometimes you'll find these things. Mm -hmm. And so did you bring it up? Did you bring it up in the PA meeting? Oh yeah, definitely. People started joking. Bob, the ghostbuster. Yeah, and my feelings got really hurt. I mm. almost picked a fight with a long-term friend of mine, and mm-hmm. it was very disruptive. And then word got out in the IFS community that I was interested in these and wanted to work with them. So I got a lot of referrals, but I also got a lot of um, a lot of flack, sort of being <laughs> excluded and pushed out. Yeah. So let's talk about. Do you care to talk about the controversy? around UBs and why do you think there is controversy controversy around unattached burdens? Well, for me, I'd spent a career and a lifetime building up this relatively complex trauma-oriented model of psychopathology. Decades, decades. And I'd published these books and I'd been the executive director of the Institute for Trauma-Oriented Psychotherapy, you know, and I thought I knew some stuff. And then this thing comes in from left field. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? This doesn't fit. You mean I was wrong all these years? Mm. And it it definitely does not fit a Western worldview. Right. 
how could there be psychic contents that don't belong mm. to the person? You know, it just, it's yeah. Like, what? What? It, it definitely, it's definitely not something in here, like in America, there's not, yeah, there's not, uh, there's not talk about that. Even in regards to part stuff, it can sometimes feel controversial, right? Mm-hmm. In that sense of introducing someone to this concept that we are multiple, that can yeah, be that's, really that's bad enough, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, you get. I mean, you get a, a lot of people that are like, "What?" <laughs> and it and it comes from this. I feel like again, this cultural, this cultural burden, right? Of looking at ourselves as we are one entity, and yeah. if we ever dare to talk about like these other parts of us as multiple energies and oh oh no that's getting into the weird stuff you know something must be wrong with you yeah <laughs> you're not yeah. healthy and that's putting us in such a uh just an energy space that is so di- divided <laughs> divided mm-hmm. and I feel like in that energy, uh, we're just going to be suffering, really, is how I, I, I view it, you know, if we're not, not able prevent, to, yeah. It prevents healing. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I know you and Dick have both been open about talking, like Dick's been open about talking about his his parts of him that have been very cautious mm-hmm. about talking about UBs. And I really appreciated what he wrote in, your, in the foreword of your book. Mm-hmm. And I... Is it okay if I read the last paragraph? Sure. Okay. So this is from Dick Dick Schwartz. And he says at the very end of his foreword in your book, he said, so we come full circle back to my fears of IFS being discredited because Bob and I are sharing our experiences with this phenomenon. Anyone who spends time exploring their own or their clients inner worlds will eventually encounter what we are describing. My hope is that enough people academics included, are now using IFS and having these experiences that they will be harder to dismiss than in Young's time. Whether or not that is true, it feels good to no longer keep this data a secret. And when I read that, I read that and I I went like, woohoo, go dick. Like, (laughs) Yeah. And it was for a long time, he really was doing everything he could to prevent me from publishing this book. Yeah. And it was very painful because we'd been quite close, you know, and he and I co-authored a book about parts and mm-hmm. the, you know, the, all the other systems throughout history that have had a multiple model of mind. Yeah. So and it like, was very difficult. Understandably, because obviously it's something you have been so passionate about and spending a lot of your energy and time towards helping people with these unattached burdens that are clearly there. You know, you're, you're directly working with them and, and also having like on Dick's end, you know, him, him trying to make sure that IFS becomes established and accredited and evidence-based, which it is now all those things. And it sounds like now he's at a spot where he feels maybe a bit more comfortable kind of being more open about these other things that have been in the shadows, mm-hmm. but they're real. Yeah, and a lot of people still don't accept unattached burdens, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty much everybody now accepts legacy burdens. Right. Because there's epigenetics, and there's the DS wrestler experiment, and there's all this hard science. 
I mean, if somebody's going, well, that can't be, you can, you can come out, well, look at this, look at, you know, A, B, C, D, E, and F. So, and legacy burdens are something that exists within people that's not part of their own personal life history. Right. So very often, if somebody comes to me and they have an unattached burden, but are absolutely unwilling to look at that possibility, I just let them conceive of it as a legacy burden. Mm, okay. It's something in their system that does not belong to them that we need to help leave. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't have any attachment to the label. Okay. I, I appreciate you, you saying that. And because I feel like that's helpful to know that if, yeah, if someone's system is very resistant to looking at this as what we call unattached burdens, that it can also then be looked at as like, we're saying a legacy burden. And if that even, yeah. if that helps, you know, the system feel safe, right? In the sense of being able to connect with it in that way as a legacy burden sense, that that could still be impactful. Yeah, still still do the same work. I want to tell a story, one of my favorite stories. First, I want to say that um, in England, because they have so many people uh, who, are, who are not European, many of the therapists have to deal with people who come to them and say, I, it's spirit possession. There's this bad spirit in me, help me. And uh, I actually think that's been really good for English therapy. <laughs> and they're starting, uh, it's mainly uh, Muslims, and they're starting to cooperate with the imams and stuff and work together and all that's very good. And if somebody comes to me with that kind of language, I'm perfectly willing to use their language. Mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly important to learn your client's mythology, the stories they tell, and their language, and to go with that and not try and impose our language at, on them. And there's a wonderful story about Milton Erickson, the great uh, psychiatrist, uh, hypnotherapist. He worked inpatient for a long time, and there was this guy on his ward who would just stand in the hallway and speak word salad all day, you know, nonsense. And then they, the, the people would come, put him back in bed, they'd feed him, and that's all he was, had been doing for years. And Dr. Erickson saw this guy, and then after a while, when he had time, he went and stood next to the guy and took down some of his word salad and studied it so that he could learn word salad. Mm. And then he sort of figured out how to speak the same kind of word salad. And then he went and stood next to the guy and spoke word salad for a while. He did that for three or four days. And then finally, the guy just turned to him in the middle of the word salad and said, cut it out, doc. And then <sighs> went back to his word salad. <sighs> so that just by learning his client's language, he broke through to a guy who'd been totally isolated for years and years and years. Right. So it's super important to learn your client's language and respect it. Mm -hmm. No need to argue with that. Thank you for sharing that story. That That's a great point of, yeah, we, we all have a different way, maybe, especially culturally looking at certain things and, of course, different labels and, and all of that. So if we can ask people that we're working with about that and what that is for them, then I'm obviously that's going to help parts of them feel more comfortable yeah. and, and safe. So yeah, let's get into what is an unattached burden. Okay. As, as we go inside an IFS, we meet all these parts, you know, they're protectors, firefighters and managers, and then there's exiles. 
And we go in, we keep going in deeper and deeper, and we'll meet things in the person that are not part of their system, that do not come from their own personal life history. Some of these were passed down from the ancestors, and we call those legacy burdens. Some of them are cultural. They come from the culture, call those culture. And there are other ones, we don't really know where they came from. <laughs> so we call them unattached burdens. And the number one way you can tell these things, well, the other thing is in there is guides, mm-hmm. which also bothers uh, Dick to talk about some because it's so it's blatantly spiritual, mm. you know. And self, I think Dick's concept of self with a capital S is a way to sort of sneak spirituality in the back door, mm-hmm. so that the academics aren't too offended by it. <laughs> 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 but there's there's it's really kind of hard to sneak these unattached burdens in the back <laughs> or guides yeah people hear voices that give them great wisdom great consolation and know way more than they do mm-hmm. and what do you do with that you know right yeah so anyway so you go in there deep enough and you keep people learn their inner systems more and more, you're going to run into these things that are not part of them and not necessarily from the ancestors, some of which are very good and have incredible, sometimes one day's experience of this kind of guide energy changes the entire course of a person's life. Mm. Wouldn't it be nice if as therapists we could do that well? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, William James was talking about that kind of experience back in like 1904. Mm. He called them conversion experiences, but they're not necessarily religious. But people can connect and have these internal experiences that change their lives in one day. That's worthy of study. Mm -hmm. There are also, on the other hand, energies in there that are not part of us that can have terrible, lifelong negative impact. And that's where we get into UBs. (laughs) That's UBs. And I want to say, I've sort of, a lot of people are at least semi-comfortable talking about guides. You know, there's all this, um, but very few people want to talk about UBs. Hmm. And do you feel like that's because of the fear? Maybe there's parts of them that, that are afraid of this idea that we could, you know, have these energies in our system that don't have any positive intention, right? And that we might not have control over the fact that they're there. And that that means there's something basically wrong with our entire worldview. Mm. It also means we're not the captain of our own ship. I, I think of this understanding of UBs, you know, over and over again, humans have been sort of pushed out of the center of the universe. You know, it used to be like where we live is the center of the planet and the planet's this big flat thing. Then whoops, oh no. (laughs) And then whoops, Earth is not the center of the universe. The sun, Mm -hmm. oh no, it's not the sun. You know, and now we're just this little insignificant thing on Mm -hmm. the edge of a galaxy among billions of galaxies. It's like that in our inner world too. Mm. You know, and this is another major dethronement of the ego. Now we're a, we're a much smaller being. We're not really, we don't have the kind of control and power we thought we did, yeah. which I actually think is quite liberating, but it's scary. It can be liberating, but it can also be scary, right? Yeah. Especially for the parts of us that are, have built up an identity of, 
Oh, yes. I'm in yeah, control. Man- managers. Have managers. Like yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> the manager parts do not like this. Right. No. And, and, and so I, I liked, I appreciated how in your book you talked about when talking about UBs, because I myself, you know, as an IFS therapist, have I haven't had any formal training in and I'm level two, but they didn't talk about that. I mean, there, there was a big talk about guides and I was taught by Ann Cinco for my level one. So she's really big in legacy burden. So that was great. So we got mm-hmm. some good training there. Uh, but with UBs, no, I haven't had any formal training yet on this. So I appreciated you breaking it down in your book and describing it just very as simply as possible about, okay, in, in IFS, we'll have it. We find a part, it's carrying a burden we help it release that burden energy to an element, right? Maybe the earth, fire, water, you know, and it gets recycled, repurposed. And and then you talked about how like with UB energy, it's that burden energy. It's just not attached to a part, right? Like in the same way, it's kind of free floating. Well, I think that's why they chose the name unattached burdens. I don't necessarily think that's a hundred percent accurate. Okay. These things usually get into a person's system by attaching to a part. Okay. It used to say it was always they offered power to a powerless part. Mm. Like some kid is being abused and they want power and they invite in any energy they can find or contact anywhere around them. And these things come in offering power, but they don't give power. They're actually parasites. And they keep people weak and dependent so they, so that they can continue to stay. Yeah. So that I think they also, and I think Dick would agree now, they also offer companionship to the lonely, to the mm. isolated. But mm-hmm. most of the time they're they deal in power. And that makes a lot of sense. That kind of promise of yeah, I will if I'm I'm here with you, therefore you're not lonely or I'll provide you with power. And especially like you were saying, if someone's already in a vulnerable state because they're being abused or neglected or whatever it might be, that's really intriguing and enticing to a system of a person yeah. to be like, yeah. yes, absolutely. Come on in. <laughs> so and that's one thing Dick says is um, if you deal with a lot of severe trauma, uh, you're going to run into these things. Yeah. And, and, can you talk about how does one, maybe how does a UB energy maybe get attached to someone's system? What makes them, I guess, more likely to latch on? What, what makes a person vulnerable? Is that yeah. Well, I guess to, I guess, receiving a UB's energy, right? You know, one of the great temptations I've had to resist as I've been doing all this research is I really want to figure out what these things are and you know, get some kind of geography of this inner world. And I had to stop myself from doing that. Mm. Because that's like this endless task, and it's almost impossible to verify anything. So I changed my question slightly, and it's made a huge amount of difference. And I got the inspiration from William James and his ideas about radical pragmatism. So the question I've been asking is, what works? What helps the suffering person in front of me? Mm-hmm. That's something I can at least move towards in an incremental way. Right. And get some relatively, 
feedback that comes quickly enough so that I can use it. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's really been a discipline for me because I want to, uh, I want to use my clients to satisfy my intellectual curiosity. And I actually think that's unethical. Mm-hmm. And I've had to really, really struggle not to do that and to stay with this, what's going to help this suffering human being in front of me. Right. You know, so I, and that, I think that's a very, very important discipline for me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and, and, and so I'm, I'm curious, yeah, like, as, as I asked that question to you of, you know, what makes some, that's kind of asking the question of like, it's focusing on, I guess, as I, if we're reflecting now on this question of kind of like the fear almost of, oh, what do I not need to do? Oh, okay. in order to, you know what I mean? Like, kind of like, oh, because my, my question was kind of focusing around, like in your book, you talked about UB energy tends to connect to, I guess, parts of us when we're in non-embodied states. Yeah. When you're out of your body, you're more vulnerable. And the, the basic rule here uh, from Dick, and I, the more and more I think this is true in a very profound way, they only have power in your system when you're frightened of them. That's if right. you are not frightened of them, they lose all power. That's right. And sort of a corollary to this is they're really good at scaring you. Hmm. And they're really good at scaring little vulnerable exile parts of you. Hmm. And that's how they get to stay in. So maybe the most important thing about working with these is it for me, it's not a violent or confrontive process at all. It's not like your film version of an exorcism. Right. It's more like if one's there and it's still sticking, you find the parts who are frightened of it. And then you work with classical IFS skills to develop a self-part relationship with that frightened part until it can come attached to the self. And then when it's well attached to the self and no longer is frightened of that uh, external energy, the connection just falls away. It just Mm. dissolves. The thing doesn't have anything to hook into anymore. Yeah. So it's basically a process of patiently and lovingly connecting to all the parts who are fearful, afraid of it, or any parts who felt they needed to have that in them, to have Mm -hmm. power or whatever it was this thing had offered. And you can be confident as a therapist that you're going to win if you just stay, you know, stay with this patient process because the UB energy is always parasitic and leaves the parts drained at the end of the day. And the self part connection is always nourishing and the part feels stronger at the end of the day. Right. So it might take, you know, several sessions or a while, but you can just, you can just rest into the fact that, you know, that this process will work mm-hmm. and that also the you know if you're when you're working with these as a therapist the very first thing you have to do is not learn that these steps or anything but work with all your own parts who are scared of this stuff <laughs> exactly and that's what I, I i appreciated that you mentioned that and specifically i feel like your step one which was address find the parts that are afraid and help them feel safe but you mentioned you were like, make sure you're doing that first as a therapist. I feel like that's something that I really love about IFS is 
the encouragement and the clear kind of the push of if you're going to be working with people with their parts, make sure that you're getting to know your system and helping your parts so that you can be accessing as much critical mass of self as you can, which is that healing energy, right? Because if you're, if you're sitting there with a client and you're coming from a place of fear, you know, then it's not really going to be that helpful. Nope. I want to say a little story. We mentioned my interest in psychedelics and um, I, I do train a lot of providers and I was talking to Michael Mithoffer, who, if any of you don't know, is the head of the MAPS Research Project. He's the world's foremost authority on using MDMA to work with PTSD. Uh, 23 years, I think. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's an amazing treat. But anyway, I was talking to him about, well, what should I teach people and what's important? He said, don't teach them techniques to work with the clients. Teach them to work with their own parts so that they are in mm-hmm. self when they're with their clients. That's what matters. The rest yeah. is like gravies almost. Right. Yeah. And that's what I appreciate about the level one experience, at least that I had, was it it felt like six months of intensive therapy for myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And and so do you care let if we go into kind of the the seven steps? That you mentioned. Okay, in your I just book. want to say something about those seven steps. Mm-hmm. I outlined that that way to give people something to hang on to. And I don't know if you read a bunch of the case studies in there. I almost mm-hmm. never follow my own seven steps. Right. They're just like sort of a framework, um, mm-hmm. a direction. And people tend to grab onto those. You know, oh, I got, so, I got, you know, I got something to hold on to, and I think what really you can hang on to is your self presence. Mm. If you're not scared of these, and you're helping the person connect with the parts inside of themselves that were scared of them, you're doing the right stuff. Yeah, I, I think about this too. I think again, it was in my level one, and I don't know if it was during home groups or something. We were kind of having a discussion about. Uh, I think parts of some people were feeling, I think, frustrated or a little bit uncertain about following the model, you know, and it was kind of this pressure, right? Of, okay, yeah, we got to follow all the six F's and all the things. And, and then there was this bigger discussion about, cause there was a musician in our home group who was also a, a, a healer. And, and she said, you know, I just think about it this way. You got to learn sometimes classical before you can play jazz and kind of just knowing that there are these steps. Okay. And let's, let's maybe get our parts comfortable with the steps. And then there can be that trust and there can be that stepping back and access to that more self energy as the leader there. And then there can be maybe more of that, like you, you show in, in your book with all the case examples, more of that flow, kind of that jazzy of like, all right, this yeah, is being presented, following. right? <laughs> we got to go here now. And that's okay because you kind of know, like you just said about the most important things. And sometimes though, like knowing the steps first, I feel like can be extremely helpful yeah. for the system. The, the one problem with it, 
it tends to put us into managers as opposed to self. Right. And yeah. managers are the parts who are the most uptight about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have an idea. Why don't I why don't I tell a couple case stories and then we'll go into the steps. Perfect. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So I had this one client who's a I don't a relatively long-term client and she had had an allergic reaction to I don't I don't remember what it was and went into the emergency room and they gave her enough of the all the anti-allergy drugs to knock down the emergence the allergic reaction but it put her in a sleep semi-comatose state for like six eight hours and then she came out of the hospital or the allergic reaction was handled but she started feeling a little weird and she went to her doctor and, and she was a triathlete so she had like a triathlete's blood pressure 95 over 65 but she went to her doctor and it was 105 over 80. And then she was still feeling weird and it just kept going up. 120 over 90, 125 over 90. And he's starting to say, you gotta go on blood pressure meds, you know? And they did some other tests and her kidney numbers were getting weird, you know? And it was freaking her out. So in one session, I just look around inside and see what's associated with these feelings and uh, of the, of this you know this new physical distress in you and she says oh i see a part i've never seen before it's a morbidly obese male and we just you know oh you know the classical stuff you do with a part how do you feel towards it mm -hmm. you know all of that and it turned out this was an unattached burden it was not part of her system that was really clear when she, when she asked it it didn't have a, an intention in there at all. It didn't know why or what it was doing in there. Mm. And then we gently helped this thing move on. And it, it didn't even it didn't even have a negative intention toward her. It didn't care about her. You know? Yeah, it really didn't. And we helped this thing move on and it left and her blood pressure started going down again. Yeah. Now I could we can make up all sorts of theories about I mean it's so tempting maybe some morbidly obese man died right next to her in that emergency room right and somehow his spirit got in but we don't know that stuff mm -hmm. but we can know pragmatically what we did help this woman right so really it's not even so much about figuring out why that energy got in there it's just a matter of how can we help that energy be released yeah. And then help very, very often they do get into people who are under anesthesia, mm. which is a classic way to be out of your body. So yeah, if you have some a client who's had many early childhood operations, the, these things are more, more likely. So let yes. me mention another case because it shows how these things get ignored. This is a husband and wife and the wife is a very prominent, really high quality IFS therapist. And the husband is a guy in recovery, long-term sobriety, 20 years, more. And um, like 10 years ago, he had told her about, there's this part inside of me that just keeps telling me I need to die. And she goes, oh, that's a big firefighter. You know, let's welcome it in. And he says, no, you don't understand. This isn't like that. Mm -hmm. And she just says, no, that's a firefighter. Let's welcome it in. You know, that's your big fire. And, he's, and then he finally just quit talking about it. And um, she heard me talking about U, uh, UBs and came and they both 
it was on Zoom, but mm -hmm. we did this session together. And, you know, it became fairly obvious quite soon this thing had no good intention. It wasn't about getting him out of pain or anything like that. It just wanted to destroy him. Yeah. It wanted to, quote, win. Mm. And he saw this and he saw it and it looked like there were three candles of different color wax that were sort of melted together. Two of those were parts of his and one of those was this external energy. Mm. One of those parts of his quite quickly developed a good relationship with self and went back to him. But the other one was really enmeshed with this negative energy. And he saw these two beings sort of enmeshed like this and the terrain they were on inside looked like a battlefield. Mm. And as they sort of separated, he saw this one as every addiction he'd ever engaged in. First, he saw it as this unbelievably sexy woman, the most sexy, beautiful woman he'd ever seen reaching out to him. And he knew and she knew that if he went to her, she would call his guts out. Mm. But it was still a big temptation. Then he saw her as a tied off arm with the bulging veins and a, a, a needle full of heroin poised over the veins, you know, so there was, and there were other images. And then finally, this part of his took off her uniform and put on his uniform and went back to self. Mm. We were able to send this thing off. Yeah. So that's an example of that was one that, like you said, did not have any positive intention. No. Yeah. No. It wanted to destroy him. Mm -hmm. It didn't really care very much how. And we could go into what, what in the world was this energy? <laughs> Where did it come from? And I don't know. That's my basic answer to that stuff. Right. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just go with whatever the client's worldview is. You know? Yeah, it is interesting because that was one of the questions as I was thinking about what to ask you. One of the questions that you know I feel like parts of me had was, yeah, like, so where are they coming from? <laughs> And how do they get in there, right? Like all these kind of, which I feel like are natural questions just of curiosity. But as you're saying, it's kind of like, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe one day we'll know more. But at this point, it's kind of like you're saying, focusing on getting to know, is this a part or is this, is this an energy that's not really part of the person's system, you know, technically, and then helping that energy be released back to a healing place so that then the person feels more balanced. Yeah. And I want to say, assume it's a part over and over and over again, assume it's a part, assume it's a part, assume it's a part, and then assume it's a part again, because it's a horrible mistake to try and amputate a part. Right. You will lose the trust, not only of that part, but of the entire system. Mm -hmm. And it will take a long time to repair. Yeah. And you go and, into that in depth and what yeah, you call step so, two. It's so important. So important. And the other thing is, if there's a polarization, well, there are polarizations in everyone's system. Mm -hmm. Almost every polarization, either side of the polarization is going to point at the other one and say, oh, that's not part of the system. Throw that one out. <laughs> right. So you're going to hear that a lot, probably, in people's systems. Mm. So 
Yeah, when you're asking, are you a part of the system? You have to be sure you're asking the thing itself, not some other, not, not you know, not other parts. Because they're, you know, some yeah. parts of people's systems are incredibly unpopular and almost all the other parts are going to say, get out of here. You yeah. wrong, get rid No. Exactly. So it's asking, it's having the client ask this energy or this part, are you a part of me? And the belief is that, Unattached burdens can't lie, correct? Well, when you... yeah, Dick Dick is very strong on that. They cannot lie about this particular question. Mm -hmm. Now, I've seen when they're entwined with a part, then they can say, yeah, I'm, I'm a part of him, but that part still has this uh, foreign energy in it. Right. And once I was lecturing and very confidently saying all these things can't lie, and this huge, powerful black woman yelled out, they lie! Mm. <laughs> and she, she was from Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And she said, our traditions are these things lie all the time. Yeah. And, you know, we work with them a lot. And she also said, some of them have been dead so long, they've forgotten who they really are, and they actually think they're a part. So... All 98 plus percent of the time, they cannot or do not lie, yeah. at least here here in uh, America. And, but I've worked in a lot of other countries. So, oh, there's a very funny thing. You know, here it's all so controversial, you know, and blah, 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 blah. But I've worked a fair amount in Mexico. And this one woman said, I was talking about them. She said, I don't know what you Yankees are so uptight about. Down here, they're as common as tacos. <laughs> <laughs> unattached burdens or what we call yeah, unattached burdens yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, oh that's so so refreshing for me to hear right yeah and isn't that interesting and there was something that you said in the book oh you said i wrote it down because it stood out to me you said something like the problem the problem is with the cultural context rather than the person's experience yeah yeah and uh there's tremendous evidence for this especially from a woman named Tanya Luhrmann, who's an anthropologist at Stanford, who I think is one of the most brilliant minds in anthropology today. Um, this, this comes out very strongly with uh, psychotic or visionary episodes. People will have an experience like this here in the West, and the way it's received is, your brain is broken, these experiences, which are the most emotionally powerful you've had in your entire life, have absolutely no meaning. Mm. And you need to be on meds for the rest of your life and expect a miserable little life. And um, that's it. And this is told to people by the great authority figure in their white coat. Right. Right. Compare this, for example, with a case uh, Dr. Lerman described in Thailand. Young woman, florid psychotic episode, goes into the hospital, stabilized, comes out, and the people from her village tell her, ah, you've been given a very difficult life. You're on the front lines of the battle between good and evil, the cosmic battle. If you fight well, you can help many others who are in this same position. She continued to have florid psychotic episodes every once in a while but she had a purpose in her life. She functioned in the society and she helped other people who had florid psychotic episodes. Mm. So the container offered in Thailand was much more functional than what we offer in America. 
Yeah. And you look at many shamanic initiations, those look very much like uh, florid psychotic episodes. And yet they're handled by that culture. They're received in that culture in a way that turns the person into a healer. Yeah. Rather than a deficit and somebody who can actually work and function in their society. Right. Well, and again, I feel like that speaks to the energy of curiosity and compassion, you know, just love and acceptance and presence mm -hmm. as opposed to let's find a way to fix you or to change you or make this different, which I understand that, you know, especially if someone appears to be suffering to a great extent. Or and having... also if that person's suffering scares you. The right doctor yes you really need to fix them in a hurry <laughs> yeah exactly but yeah if there can be this as a healer you know uh, making sure again as we've been talking about to be in that energy of of self and just kind of going with <laughs> your intuition really right and that's something that i've really appreciated about this work in ifs and I feel like that kind of goes into the playing jazz thing, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. It's like you learn the model, and then it's like you can start as you're really accessing self-energy. You can also then just start noticing your intuition, right? And there was, I believe, another story that you mentioned in your book about, I think it was another maybe level one training where you were witnessing another lead trainer engage in a release of an unattached burden. and. It was something about like he, he invited the unattached burden to like swirl around the person. And you were, I think you asked the question of like, what made you, where did you learn that? And he was like, I don't know. It just kind of came to me, you yeah. know? So kind of this accessing, yeah, that just kind of being with mm -hmm. and that healing energy and just kind of noticing what is meant to happen here. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and being really curious and respectful. Right. Not imposing my ideas on anybody and listening to theirs. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I've I've really tried to be less Eurocentric. And I know that even though my wife is Korean and I've studied Korean shamanism a lot, and I've worked in Mexico, China, Pakistan, all really tried, I've really tried to not be Eurocentric. And I know everything that comes out of my mouth is still Eurocentric. Mm -hmm. But there's so much, for example, the spiritists in Brazil, and I think Brazil is doing the best job of integrating this kind of work with uh, Western psychiatry. There are over 50 psychiatric hospitals in Brazil that have spiritist healing teams in them. And the spiritists have very distinct views about these things. They think they're all the souls of dead people who for one reason or another were too frightened to go on to where they should mm. to, to continue their own existence and so clung to some living person. And they say that when, these, when you find these things in a person, that spirit in their language be also becomes your client. And it's your duty to help that one heal and go where mm. it needs to go to heal. Yeah. And I think that that's, I'm quite close to that now. I don't, I'm not confronted with these things hardly ever. I mean, sometimes you have to be a little bit, but it's mostly, this is another suffering being, whatever in the world this is, I don't know. Right. But, 
you know, to try and help it too. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful way of looking at it, right? As opposed to, you know, the the way of maybe going towards it from you know, like a manager part of like, okay, yeah, you're uh, evil and you need to get out of here, right? Yeah. Kind of welcoming yeah. it with with that love and curiosity and openness I, and kindness, yeah. right? Yeah. And letting it know that, like you said, and we're not going to punish you. We're not here to judge you. Yeah. We're going to send you where you can transform and grow and get real nourishment and healing. Yeah. Yep. And that's a beautiful thing and, to offer. You know, in, in their nastier aspects, these things love to fight. So if they can provoke you into conflict, that's their territory. That's their world. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're really good at poking at you. <laughs> yeah. I also was thinking about, is it Stephen King's It, where, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, the It character was an attached burden, but it made me think about the way they helped, helped that entity release was with love, you know, because the energy really thrived on the fear and mm-hmm. it would get bigger and bigger and bigger. But then when they realized, oh, if we can be present with this energy within ourselves with love, and ask the parts of them the way I looked at it to kind of step back and give space so that there can be access yeah, to that love and kindness and compassion. There was nothing that energy couldn't hurt them. Yeah. I, I have another case that was really uh, interesting along those lines. This woman had done an ayahuasca group. Now, ayahuasca, when people do that, it's almost always in group settings. 10 people, something like that, one or two shamans. Um, and it was a very poorly managed session. There were inadequate uh, leadership. And she got something in her. She, she went home from that session and felt really weird, had a florid psychotic episode, was institutionalized. Hmm. In California, they're called 5150s. That's, that's the penal code that right. involuntary confinement. And her, she was here in California. Her parents came out from the Midwest to take her home. And on the way home, she was so bad off, they had to stop three times and have her institutionalized again to stabilize her enough so she didn't jump out the car. You know, they get her home, she's fine. And then she has these episodes and, you know, really bad looking like, oh. Yeah. She had a cousin or something, some relative who was a little bit psychic. And the cousin came in and said, next time this happens, just tell the being, I have nothing here for you but love. And repeat that over and over and over. And it worked. Yeah. The, that tried to come back in her. And she just said that over and over and over again. And the thing left. And she came to me after this for trying to make sense of this <laughs> right? and, and what, what the world, um, you know, more stabilization. And um, she said that she thought the thing might not have liked love. Mm. And that might've been what did it. And she also said, just recognizing it wasn't part of my system was so healing. Yes. And you know, that's something we've refused to tell people because it doesn't fit our dominant ideology. Mm. 
But like you said, with legacy burden stuff, now that there is this science around epigenetics and how it can be, you know, yeah. impact the yeah. DNA, people are more open to to that understanding. And and I have found that within myself for sure. And also in clients where we have this conversation of legacy burden stuff where it is like this relief. It's like yeah. this, this sense yeah. of like, oh, oh yeah, like that makes so much sense. This isn't mine. Like yeah. this, and then yeah. there's a big oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's yep. not mine and it's not mine to carry yeah yeah so in, in regards to the steps we've already gone through you know technically the the first three i think in the sense of like step one finding the parts who are afraid of the unattached burden making sure they feel safe making sure you attend to those parts right we're not just pushing them away yeah we actually love, love them, them. Yeah. let me say something more about this because i think this is so important the unattached burdens actually unintentionally do us a favor. It's like ants in your, your kitchen. The ants are not trying to help you, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> but they can't help but show you where you spilled the food. Mm. They'll make this nice line to where the food is spilled <laughs> for you. Unattached burdens do that too in the inner world. They show us the parts of the exiles, usually, not always, but usually exiles, who are the most damaged, the most mm. frightened, the most isolated, who most need our love. So we don't want to rush past this. People, yeah. want, people think, oh, I want to rush past that and get this thing out of here. No, no, no. This is the gold. Mm. You're, you're being given a spotlight is being cast on the parts of the person who most need your love and attention. So right. don't rush past that. Take your time welcome these home mm. yeah I, I, that's a beautiful way of of putting that of i love the ants metaphor and that makes a lot of sense right that if we can connect to yeah the parts that are holding the fears or the concerns that it's going to lead us to these parts within ourselves that really need our attention yeah yeah it's a great reminder and then in step two, that's where you talk about assume it's a part until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. And then step three, creating distance between the person and the unattached burden. And you just talk about, you know, and inviting a conversational distance so that yeah. there can be some spaciousness. And usually here in the West, what works is light most often. Surround light. Form a ball or egg-shaped container, gently pull it out of your body to a good conversational distance. And if it won't go, that is not a problem. <laughs> it's information. There's some part that's keeping it close that it mm. can hook into. So it, it's really important information about that part. So if it's glommed on, you can't pull it around front, that is not a problem. Who's it hooking into? How's it hooking into? How is it attached there? Okay. Because again, it could be a part that at the time was really maybe feeling powerless and maybe this unattached burden energy promised it power, right? That could be an example. Yeah. And it could still think it's getting power from that. Yeah. Okay. And then you mentioned no, like once that energy is maybe encased in that ball of light and it is outside of the person and noticing if there's any cords or connections that mm -hmm. are connecting with yeah between like the ball of light and on the person right yeah 
And it's super important. Don't cut these. Right. Everybody <laughs> wants to cut them. Ah, get rid of this. Ah, no, because they give you that wonderful information about where the parts are who so hurt living in your body. Mm. So ask very carefully, where does this cord touch the body? Get really curious about it. What part lives in that area of your body? Mm. And find that part and offer it love and stay with it until it turns to self and attaches to self. And then it, the, the connection that cord or whatever it was usually just dissolves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes it falls away or, but you yeah. know, it, there's nothing in the deliverance ministries, the Protestant and Pentecostal uh, equivalent of exorcism. They talk about, there has to be a ground in the person in their language, a ground in the person for the demon to stand on, mm -hmm. but there has to be something in the person. And when that part is well connected to self, there's nothing left for that being energy to stand on. To yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, it's noticing are there again, yeah, any of those connections to parts within the person that might be holding on to that. And then step four, you mentioned detaching from the UB and offer healing to the energy. And this is where you go into offering some statements that can be said to, to that UB energy. And I liked how you mentioned, um, you added in a couple things, but it's kind of like, you are no longer welcome in my body, my emotions, my thinking, my beliefs, my spirit, my managers, my firefighters, my exiles. I mean, let me say that's from Mitchie Rose, mm -hmm. who I think is one of the unacknowledged mothers of IFS mm. and deserves a lot more credit than she gets. And I use that because I pause at each one of those things because there'll be a giveaway if there is still any uh, uh, attachment there. You know, if you say, uh, you are no longer welcome in my body and the client's shoulder starts twitching. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's why I do that. I go through this inventory and I can just watch the client and be really curious. Is this clear? Is this clear? And yeah. That's a great so it's point. It's more than just sort of like an incantation. Right. And then this is where you also mentioned like letting it know, like, yeah, again, we're not doing this to punish you or judge you. We're going to send you where you can transform and grow and get that nourishment and healing. Yeah. And one thing I've done, and this is quite recent, I offer that unattached burden imagery I've taken from the studies of near-death experiences. Uh, Grayson, I think it was, had like 10 primary characteristics of things people right after death would see. And I offer that imagery to the, to the unattached burden to help it move on. Tunnel, pathway, light, all that stuff. It's, it seems to be very helpful. Yeah. And this would fit with the Brazilian spiritists model. And then step five, you go into rebalancing the system and asking, do any of the parts miss the unattached burden? Mm -hmm. And not turning to those par parts with shame or judgment, of course, but just curiosity and, and wanting to really understand, right? Like, if there are parts that are missing that, let's hear from yeah. them about why. Yeah, yeah. And what one image I'm using a lot lately is, well, when we get one of these things out, very often it's like a very heavy person getting out of a canoe. The canoe sort of bobbles around. 
that's natural. That's to be expected. Yeah. Again, that rebalancing, right? Kind yeah. of, yeah, feeling that out. And this is where you also mentioned the ceiling light meditation in yeah. order to help establish safety. This is from William Baldwin, who of all things, oh, we're running down on time. I'll I know. My story here. Many people want to establish boundaries to keep these things out and they get, uh, and fortifications. Protectors always elicit what they most fear. And that's what fortifications and boundaries tend to do too. Mm. And they tend to absorb a lot of your energy. You know, you're mm. putting in all this energy into all this stuff. So they're okay, but I think there's a much better way, which is have the person focus on the light inside themselves, the core of their life force. Some people experience it as warmth, vibration, light, whatever it is, focus on that and let it grow. Mm. Let it get bigger and bigger and bigger and have them notice, are there any dark places, any obstructions, constrictions, and have it go all the way to their skin, all over their body and have them notice anything in there that's obstructing this and tell them, don't fight it. We just want to get a map now. And then I have them let it go poof through your skin, extend a couple feet around you. And then notice if there are any shadows or any things in that space around you. And I think this is a much better way of providing safety because it gives you a great deal of information. I actually have outlines of the human body. I have people fill in and say, oh, there was a shadow thing here and something weird over, you know, so there's a lot of information about parts or other energies. Yeah. And also it doesn't waste any energy. This is, it's, it actually helps you have more self-energy. It's not a drain. It increases your self-energy. Right. And then step six, this is where you mentioned inviting guidance and maybe guides to also help fill maybe that empty space with mm -hmm. yeah that that new energy you know of light or mm -hmm. whatever it might be yeah. yeah and and again i feel like we can we could have a whole another hour and a half long talk about guides and guidance which i'd i'd love to do so okay let me just can, say one thing here about this yeah. you know the whole ifs model is constraint release we have this basic idea that self is there and all we gotta do is get the clouds to move back. I think that's also true about finding guides. If we get the UBs to move back, the guides are there. Mm -hmm. We don't have to go towards them so directly and be pulling at them. And I think this is actually the quickest way, the most efficient way to find guidance or spirit energy inside ourselves. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I've focused first on the UBs rather than first on guides, mm. because it's a constraint release kind of idea. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because I, I, yeah, one thing I'd written down from that part in the book was, yeah, constraints block access to self-energy and mm -hmm. to guidance, to guidance energy. So yeah, if we can address the UBs and any other of those constraints, then we can have more access to these beautiful healing energies that are within our realm. Mm -hmm. And then the last step that you mentioned is step seven, which is the cleanup. And you had mentioned like address any parts that feel hurt or shame or anything, right? In regards well, to this. Well, there's also often something I would call a developmental cascade. 
if one of these things got in when you were three years old, it it will have affected all your developmental tasks from the age of three onwards. So often the fact that that thing was in a person can leave ordinary burdens. Mm. So you just have to go back and work with work with the ordinary burdens. Yes. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. It really does. And those are the seven steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you again, you know, Bob, for writing this book and having these conversations and I find this stuff so fascinating and yeah, if you're open to it, if you're open to seeing it, then you could open the door to releasing some of the helping release some of these constraints, right? Helping to live. um, This is sort of more theoretical and a lot of people don't want to go here, but I want to. (laughs) So (laughs) go for it. (laughs) I think the huge implication of this is that our minds are porous. Our minds are surrounded by a semi-permeable membrane. They're not some billiard ball. And Tanya Lorman, that great anthropologist, talks about this. She says, in the West, we have what she calls the citadel model of mind. We think everything inside of us is private. It's our property. It's our identity. All sorts of stuff like that. And this looks strong and tough and big, but it's actually incredibly fragile and brittle and the opposite of flexible. You know, if if you start hearing voices with the Citadel model of mind, you're in trouble. Mm. You can just shatter. If you start hearing voices with a mind that knows it's porous, it's not a big deal. It's okay. Mm. You can you can dialogue with those voices. <laughs> you can enjoy them, or learn from them, all sorts of stuff. And there's a tremendous amount of evidence now, especially from this philosopher at McGill University, Charles Taylor, Charles Eisenstein, Barbara Ehrenreich. They all point to a creation of this citadel model of mind probably starting around the time of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation that have led to the epidemic of mental illness we're experiencing Mm. now and distress because it creates a fundamental underlying sense of isolation. Yes, And, you know, all these people in the 20th century talked about alienation and how we feel so alienated. Well, if you have this citadel model of mind, and consider yourself this private, isolated thing, you're going to feel alienated. Right. And um, Siegel, Daniel Siegel, the interpersonal neuroscience, he's exactly on this same idea from a whole other direction. You know? Yeah, it, it makes so much sense. neurobiology. Yeah. So I think this material oddly goes and joins up with all those other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I... I, I... I totally agree with what you're saying that, again, if culturally we're looking at our minds as this fortress and billiard ball and whatever's happening in there is happening, I mean, yeah, that kind of gives this energy of like hopelessness, you know? Yeah. And isolation. And isolation. And there's all these new studies with addiction, you know, like Jonathan or Johan Hari says the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's human connection. Mm. And uh, there's this wonderful woman in England, Isabel Clark, who nobody in America has heard of, who's a uh, works inpatient, 
you know, in the mental hospitals. And she, she doesn't know Tanya Luhrmann's work. She has what she calls the billiard ball theory of mind. And she says, that's what sets people up for having a bad time with these psychotic experiences. Mm. And if we had a different model of mind, people could view these as spiritually transformative. Not all of them. I mean, some of them are just, but many of them could be held in a much more positive way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if people are interested in working with you or getting in contact with you, how might they do that? Okay, the next thing I've got coming up is uh, a class with Life Architect, which is an online program presenter out of Poland. Uh, it'll be in May and June, and it'll be like the basics of how to do this work. And then I have this big dream. I want to establish something I'm jokingly calling UBU. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be an online and the, the class with the, the group in Poland will be the basic class. It's like 14 hours. And then I want to do a whole bunch more of advanced subject classes of three, four hours each on advanced topics around UBs and guides. Yeah. Then have a large, you know, online thing that people can go to and see, learn what they want. Yes. Uh, I do, I am doing a few supervision, small supervision groups, and I'll probably, I'm probably going to have some sort of more mid-sized supervision group coming up, but I'll be, I'll be probably announcing those through the uh, Life Architect class. Okay. And I do have a website, robertfalconer.us. And I'll put I, that in I the show this, notes. I have this magnificent IT person, Nikki Friend. If it wasn't for her, I couldn't do this. <laughs> I don't. I don't even look at my own website. You know, Nikki, good, good Nikki for help. you. <laughs> yeah. That's probably, great. Yeah. Probably at least once a day, I'm on the phone, Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness, yeah, for people who are well versed in technology, because I'm not one of them either. So. <laughs> I appreciate those. She did the cover of the book too. Oh, oh, I was going to ask you that. I'm looking at it sitting right here. It's beautiful. It's yeah, a beautiful. Well, we, we did it together, but it was primarily her. Well, it's very well done. It's, it's like one of those images that I'll just, I'll stare at it and it just, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Both great. of you did a, did a great job. Well, again, Bob, thank you so much for sitting here and, and speaking with me about this stuff. It's, it's fascinating and I hope people listening to this are taking away something, you know, that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Besides and, a bad attitude. <laughs> <laughs> and they can find your book on Amazon and yep. all the yeah, other it places. Should be, it should be a bunch of other places, but Amazon for sure. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, thank you all so much. And I will talk to you all next time. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Right.